Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay. Well, this is the first of two podcasts I'm going to be releasing in the coming days on the topic of jihad. Early next week, I'll release a solo podcast on all that we've seen in recent weeks in response to the unfolding war in Gaza, the global eruption of anti-Semitism and support for Hamas, and all the moral confusion suggested by that response. But first, I want to bring you a conversation I had with the Atlantic writer Graham Wood. Graham has been in Israel since a few days after the October 7th attacks. He is a staff writer for The Atlantic and the author of The Way of the Strangers, Encounters with the Islamic State, which is well worth reading. He joined The Atlantic in 2006 and has since reported from every continent except Antarctica and on a very wide variety of topics. He's also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and he teaches at Yale University. Graham has been on the podcast several times before. He really has been my go-to resource on the topic of jihad and the way these ancient ideas of martyrdom and holy war have been playing out in the modern world. So we speak in some detail about what happened on October 7th, and these details are fairly gruesome, so be aware of that. This is definitely not an episode of the podcast you want to be listening to with your kids in the car, but I think it's necessary to talk about the details because so much of the reaction to what happened on October 7th, and in particular the reaction to Israel's response to it, is not making contact with the specific differences in the acts of violence perpetrated by the two sides. The moral logic of what happened on October 7th and the logic of its support in the Muslim world to the degree that it is supported is quite a bit different than the logic of Israel's response. So Graham and I discussed that as well as a wide variety of geopolitical concerns that follow from the current conflict. Once again, a reminder Subscribers to the podcast can share links to full episodes now. You can share them one-to-one or post them on social media. Needless to say, the way to support the podcast is to subscribe at samharris.org. And if you can't afford a subscription, you need only send an email to support at samharris.org, and you will be given one. And now I bring you Graham Wood. I am here with Graham Wood. Graham, thanks for joining me. Sam, it's good to be back. So when um, October 7th happened, you and I, uh, I think you, you and I have had a shared response on, on uh, many points, but uh, one stark difference is that given your job description, you were quickly booking an airline flight to Israel. Uh, so I, I should just say that there's, uh, you know, there's some amazement uh, on the part of a, a bystander like myself that you can do that with such uh, alacrity. Uh, remind people the, the kinds of topics you have focused on as a journalist that, that would uh, make sense of this behavior. Uh, yeah, so I, I was booking tickets to Israel, and I'll, I'll say a bit more about the complications of that in a second. But yeah, I, I've been reporting on this region for a long time, R- reporting on the Iraq war when that was going on the Afghanistan war as well. And then for years, I was reporting on ISIS, which has become sadly relevant with this conflict. Mm. There's, there's been a lot of discussion, especially from the Israeli side, 
saying Hamas is ISIS. And you know, that, that's, that's a really complicated thing for me, given that if you look at ISIS for as long as I did, that you can start to see some salient, interesting differences there. But yeah, it, as soon as the 7th of October happened, it was, you know, it's like hearing an, an, an old song that you heard all the time at some point and you, you just couldn't get it out of your head. And for me, it was like hearing the old ISIS rhythms coming back. Mm. And first thing I did was try to get a ticket, which was difficult because airlines were canceling flights left and right. So I, it took two or three tries before I finally got into Israel a few days after the attack. Yeah, so I want to get into the, the, the point you just um, indicated about jihadism not being a unified front, and, and there are interesting differences there. And I just want to talk about jihadism in general and how I think that's the appropriate lens to throw over current events, unlike terrorism and, and, and other, other terms that we, we tend to use. But let's just start with just what, what your experience has been uh, in Israel, what, what, what uh, I think you've, uh, you were there not that long ago. What is it like? I mean, I got to imagine the, the, the analogy that we've heard used so often that this is there September 11th immediately struck me as wrong in, in several respects. Uh, and I think it's, this is quite a bit worse than what September 11th was for American society. Well, what, what is it like in Israel and, and what has your experience been so far? So I've been here almost continuously since a few days after the attack, and I have seen things change. You know, on arrival, there was an atmosphere of mourning, but more than anything else, people were just stunned. I mean, it it had been a while since, say, the Second Intifada, when the last time it really felt like in one's daily life in this country that you'd you'd wonder whether when you left the house, you come back to the house whether the bus you were on was going to explode, that kind of thing. And this really did reach into the daily life of Israelis, and you could just, you could just feel it. I mean, there's an atmosphere of, of mourning, also an atmosphere of fury that I, I don't think really pertained in the time immediately after September 11 in the United States. That there was this sense, I think, that of a lot of Israelis that they were betrayed, like hmm. deeply betrayed. By their by, own government and by the exactly. idea. Exactly. Yeah. Like they expected that Hamas would do this if it could. What they didn't expect was that their own government would allow it to happen, especially a government like the government led by the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who the reason he was in power was because he said, I have taken a hard line against, the, against terrorism, against Palestinians, and I have delivered security. And that's going to allow us to consolidate gains. And so to come back to Israel after watching the internecine political squabbles in Israel earlier this year, and then to see even the people who loved Netanyahu saying, you are scum of the earth. You're just horrible. The, the, the idea that you would leave us defenseless like this is the deepest betrayal of a, a leader of this country. What do we make of the fact that they were the, the, the murdered in the South, so defenseless. I mean, did, have you interviewed anyone who's in a position to actually describe what broke down there as far as intelligence failures or just, uh, I mean, there, there have been reports or rumors that there was hacking of uh, the actual monitoring system. I and mean, what, 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 
what actually happened that explains not, not only the fact that Hamas was able to get across the border in that way, but that it took so long for the IDF to respond. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the actual tactics that they used, we don't know the full story. And I guarantee there's going to be a commission that the Israelis have to discover exactly what happened. But, you know, on other parts of the border, I've had people tell me that a bird cannot fly across that border without the Israelis knowing. So for them to be so blind that there can be upwards of a thousand armed men who go across the border and then have the run of the place in several different Israeli communities for, for hours and hours and hours afterward is just an incredible failure. And, you, you know, it, it's, it's not just a, a failure in the sort of everyday sense of, wow, that was a security breach. It, it, it reaches, as you may know, really deep into the Israeli psyche because what, what happened what resembles pogroms that you know people might have heard about from 100 130 years ago mm. it, it 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 really it, it taps an ancestral horror of you know stories of great 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 grandma being ra- raped by cossacks or massacres in kishinev in 1903 this is this is just utterly horrifying in precisely the way that israelis thought they were immune to because they were in israel mm. how it happened it's it's still unclear, but the fact that it happened in this way, at this scale, has horrified the country. I think one of the other aspects of the surprise on October 7th probably had something to do with the attention that the IDF was paying to the West Bank. The West Bank, is, of course, is separate from the Gaza Strip, and the reason they weren't paying as much attention as they might otherwise have been paying to the Gaza Strip was because over the last year, settlers have been pushing Palestinians off of land in the West Bank, and they've had to do that with the help of the IDF. So hmm. you find that there's a growing number of resources that were devoted to the settler project, that is, Israelis who have tried to create outposts on the West Bank and grab land there, usually at the expense of Palestinian communities. And to do that without violence breaking out, you have to have a military that oversees the whole thing and uh, is often present at the very moment of the dispossession. So if, if that happens more and more, there's only finite resources, and those resources mm-hmm. were probably taken away from Gaza, and that probably meant that Gaza was more vul- I mean, that the, the, the communities on the edge of Gaza were more, more vulnerable than they otherwise might have been. Yeah, I saw the article you wrote about your encounter with settlers. There's not a neuron in my brain that is supportive of Jewish religious extremism, much less his claims upon real estate. Is it your understanding that Netanyahu has covertly encouraged that? Or what, what culpability is there for the, the current government for that behavior? Enormous culpability. Many Israelis, when they look at the failure of their government to protect them on October 7th, they notice that these resources were diverted to the mm-hmm. West Bank by Netanyahu's government. They also notice that members of his government have been explicit about all this, that they want to take that land, they want to seize it by force if necessary, and they're going to, for ideological purposes, expand onto that, onto that land. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, it, it's been a major part of his coalition to, to take a very, very strong pro-settler stance. 
I think many people expect there to be a, a massive political reckoning at some point based on this failure to keep Israelis safe. Do you think that reckoning is going to come before the unfolding war in Gaza is over? I mean, is it going to come faster than anyone wants, or is it going to be safely shelved until the more immediate existential concerns are dealt with? I think Netanyahu personally is toast. His political future is sealed. So is the political future of most of the people in his government, but not yet. There's a belief that the the heads of the IDF and the political leadership, they stay in, until the moment is right for them to, to move. But the, the main proposition that Netanyahu offered Israelis was, I will keep you safe. We, the right, built a wall. We have kept there from being another intifada. We've had the Iron Dome intercepting rockets coming in. And now they've presided over the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust, mm. which is clear evidence that whatever they offered before, they've utterly failed at, which is why you, you see Jews in Israel saying things like, you know, I came to Israel because the whole point of Israel is to avoid having massacres of Jews, right. which could have happened in anywhere else where you find Jews except for possibly the United States. And you can't do that. If that's the case, I'm just going to go back to Morocco. I'm just going to mm. go back to, to the lands of my grandparents or parents. Because if you can't provide that, then what good are you? So Netanyahu and his government will bear the full brunt of that anger from across the spectrum. And it's impossible for me to imagine that they could survive politically after that. Mm. So let's talk about what actually happened. I mean, there's been obviously a lot of reporting on this. Uh, one thing that has changed recently, and you, and you wrote a piece in The Atlantic about this, is that the, uh, the IDF felt the need to actually bring journalists and uh, perhaps others into an auditorium and show them some of the body cam footage and the, the nanny cam footage and the dash cam footage that, was, that they had acquired of what actually happened. I mean, first, before you, we, we talk about the details, do, this was not only Hamas. I mean, I think you saw footage from, like, you know, GoPro footage that Hamas themselves shot to document their atrocities. But there were other ordinary Gazans who came across the border and participated. Was that captured in the footage you saw, or is that just something that we know of based on, you know, other reporting? It's not captured in the footage that I saw in the IDF's screening. So the IDF's screening was truly raw footage. I mean, it was, it was just images that were captured, as you say, by nanny cams, by security cams, by GoPros. But there was no indication of, of which faction from Gaza was, was doing what. But hmm. you know, there's lots of other footage, too. I, I, I've, seen, I've seen lots of footage of people stealing you know, TVs, solar panels, and right. ordinary Gazans crossing over the border simply to loot. So that, that's, that's a hmm. big part of what, what, what people have seen. And also, they also participated in taking of hostages. It seemed that it wasn't just Hamas that was gathering people to be brought back to Gaza, but there were other just Gazans doing it. Yeah, I mean, there's every indication that, that people were just streaming across the border and taking what and whom they could. And, you know, I, I, I believe Hamas has even suggested as much that some of the time since then has been spent just figuring out who they got, you know, mm. they, they don't know 
what they have to bargain with because different groups have taken different people to different places. Right. So this was disorganized in a way. I mean, it was, it's almost that they succeeded, it seems at least, that they may have succeeded beyond their wildest imaginings, and they encountered much less resistance than they were imagining. So they just, they had this kind of embarrassment of sadistic riches where they, they had all the time in the world to kill people and torture people and desecrate their bodies and then decide what they wanted to do next, whether that was bringing hostages back to Gaza or standing and fighting a final battle that would, would end in their martyrdom. But, you know, that, that was so slow in coming that I, it seems like they, um, they were surprised by their own success. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a, that's a really important point that explains a lot of why we're at where we're at, that they did not know how successful they were going to be. They did some things that are just standard military practice. You know, you attack an outpost, uh, you succeed, and then you create a perimeter around it. You sort of expand that perimeter so it's as defensible as possible. And that perimeter, in the different places where they attacked, expanded and expanded and expanded to to include you know, whole civilian areas where I, I think they were, I'm certain that they were expecting to attack civilians, to take them hostage. But the idea that they would take 200 plus civilians hostage, that they would not encounter significant resistance for several hours, mm. that doesn't seem to be even in, in their plans. So, you, you know, you, you often hear people asking, hey, well, did Hamas, what did Hamas think was going to happen? Did they think that, they, that the Israelis weren't going to go into Gaza and destroy Gaza as a result of this? How crazy must they have been? I think they actually didn't think that this would happen because they didn't think they'd kill and kidnap so many Israelis. And that's what actually happened. So we're, we're in a state where neither Israel nor Hamas thought they would be in hmm. at the beginning of October. There's this misconception that, that Israel is a heavily armed society because everyone does their stint in the army. But uh, if I'm not mistaken, people return their guns to the army when they leave the army, right? So this is not like Texas, where most homes have guns in them. Am, am I correct in thinking that? Yeah, that's right. So it, it's very common to see people with handguns in Israel. It's very uncommon to see people who are, or it, it was uncommon a month ago, to see people who were out of uniform carrying around assault rifles. So I think it, it, if, if Hamas fighters came into a kibbutz and encountered resistance, they were likely to be encountering a few people with handguns against their Kalashnikovs, their mm -hmm. RPGs. So yeah, it's, it's, it's an armed society, but it's not like trying to take over a town in Texas. So what happened? I don't know how much detail you want to go into based on the footage you saw, but I think it's worth discussing something in detail, just because I, I think, I mean, we, obviously there's, we're in such a strange moment now where we have, we're, we're literally witnessing demonstrations on the campuses of Ivy League universities, really in, in explicit support of what happened on October 7th, seemingly knowing the details of what happened. And, you know, there are photos of hostages that get ripped off of, of walls as though that were some intelligible way of supporting the Palestinian people. And, um, making some sense of their immiseration in Gaza under Hamas's rule. 
um, as they you know are used on, as on an hourly basis as human shields in this conflict. It feels like it's worth describing what actually happened because I would argue it makes no sense in political terms, and it makes a lot of sense in jihadist ones, which is to say it's unsurprising. I mean, I, I, we'll get into a discussion of jihad proper and differences between Hamas and other groups. But what happened was so, it really seemed like a kind of violence you would not expect in the modern world, certainly not in a, in a normal modern military context. And yet, when you think of it in terms of jihad, it's not actually fundamentally surprising. So I think it is worth describing anything you, you are comfortable describing from what you've seen. Yeah. So here's what happened. On the morning of October 7th, there were multiple breaches of this wall between Gaza and Israeli communities on the other side of the wall. And these communities, they tended to be kibbutzes. So basically, like there were agricultural co-ops and these intentional communities filled with people who kind of lived together, in some cases ate together, and who in the morning... I would actually, I would just add here that the one very painful irony here, if anyone on the other side could be susceptible to this irony, is that the people in these kibbutzes were not uh, right-wing settlers. These were not fans of Netanyahu, I would imagine. M many of these people, most of these people, have been described as left-wing idealists of one form or another, and precisely the kinds of people who would volunteer to drive Gazans across the border to get medical treatment in Israel. Yeah, totally. I mean, th these were peaceniks. These were 60s throwbacks. These were labor Zionists. The kibbutz movement goes back, you know, before I was born, you know, into a, a period when, when people were, they, they had a kind of utopian, peace-oriented view of the world. And, and a lot of these people who were like 85 years old, who were, who were taken hostage, they came from, from that. So what happened first was that Hamas and others breached the border wall, attacked a number of military outposts, and were just wildly successful in taking over these outposts. I remember seeing the footage the day that it happened. It came out that quick. They came into those outposts seemingly unopposed. Um, there wasn't really any preparation whatsoever. And they just massacred a large number of the, the the soldiers, many of them conscripts, who were there. So that, that's that's roughly what happened at the military outposts. In the communities, they would encounter not much more resistance than than that. You can see in the videos they they show up at the at the gates of the communities. The, these gates they're closed. You have to like have a code to open them up. Not that much more complicated than like a garage door opener. And so in some of the videos, you see them just waiting there, like hiding almost like in the bushes next to the gates, waiting for someone to drive up and shooting them, killing them. And then over and over in, in the security cameras footage, you can see there will be a, some sedan that rolls up and you, know, you, can, you can just imagine what's going through the heads of these Israelis who notice that something's weird and then notice that What's weird is that there's a guy with a gun who's who's there, and then next thing they know they're being shot. And you know, there's there's no shortage of of really disturbing footage. But the, the way that the life 
of these Israelis went from extremely normal to a little off to over. It was just horrifying. These were people who, like, they weren't even resisting in, in the slightest, and they're simply massacred. And then their bodies pulled out of the cars, the cars looted a bit, sometimes destroyed further. And then once they, can finally, they could finally get into, into the gates of the communities, then things got quite grisly. I, I've been to a few of them since, and they're totally evacuated. Uh, it's unclear whether they'll, they'll ever be repopulated. The, the, the former residents are in other cities in Israel now. But you, you see some houses that are completely intact, and then others that are piles of, of rubble and cinders, and then others that are just completely bullet-riddled. And over the course of hours, we're talking between 12 and 24 hours, these houses were raided, the occupants were hunted down, shot, tortured. Israeli houses now, in order to be up to code, they have to, if you build a new house, it has to have a safe room that's meant to withstand missile attacks, or, or rocket attacks rather. And so of course, a lot of families went into these, these safe rooms. The safe rooms are not meant to withstand 24 hours of diabolical terrorists surrounding you and deciding to do whatever they want, such as just light f- your house on fire and, and, and having you burn to death with, within it. So a lot of people died that way. There are, from the GoPro videos, lots of images of, of old people who were presumably just confused about the noise outside. And through a screen door, you can see them just get shot. And then some of the other images are, are some of the other videos are, are they're just deeply disturbing. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of horrible stuff from covering ISIS. Mm. And this is horrible in a kind of different way. ISIS w- would have much higher production values and they would describe why they're doing this crucifixion or this beheading and then pronounce the sentence and you mm. know, you'd see from four different camera angles what they're doing. In this, it's more like we are entering everyday scenes of, of normal life and someone's kitchen, someone's living room, walking into their front porch and then interrupting it as violently as possible. You see early in the morning, so you see people who are, are in their pajamas, half-dressed, who are scrambling, trying to figure out what they're, what's going on and how to stay safe. and within seconds, their families destroyed. There was one in particular captured in a nanny cam uh, where there's a father with two young sons who are clearly woken up, surprised, but aware that they're being attacked. And they tentatively leave their house and then go to a little area in their backyard, I think thinking they, they might be able to hide there. And pretty quickly, the terrorists toss a a grenade in and there's an explosion. You see the dad killed probably instantly. I mean, he's he's fallen over and and, uh, at least unconscious and certainly never gets up again. Uh, And then the kids covered in blood, one of them's lost an eye. And then you hear them as they, they run back into their house, sit in their kitchen, and you hear them talk about the fact that their lives are about to end call for their mom, talk about daddy, daddy. And then one, one of the children says to the other, I think we're about to die. And all of this happens 
while the terrorists are still there, I mean, the Hamas, the Hamas guy, presumably the same one who threw the grenade, walks into the scene and like opens up their fridge. He says, "Water, water." I, I think he's trying to give them water, but he. You know, so there are other stories of of Hamas fighters who go into people's houses and then eat the breakfast that the family had prepared. So it's the interruption of life that is, for me, mm. just haunting. Mm. So there have been reports of um, you know, decapitated babies and you know, a baby put in an oven, and, uh, and there have been people who have doubted those reports. What do you know about the, the veracity of the, the most extreme imagery we've been told about? So what I have seen myself is rubble. When you go to the actual places at the time when I was able to go there, which was days, not weeks after the events, already the, the, the scene had been tidied up a bit. But it was clear that there's a horrible cataclysm that happened. There were, though, on the very day that it happened, there were videos that were coming out showing the most awful, gruesome stuff. So there is no doubt that what happened on October 7th was an atrocity, that there was sadism, that there was an attempt to kill whoever could be killed, uh, and to do it in a way that would be as painful for the victims as possible. So th that much is a certainty. And then the videos, they sh the, the things that the videos show, even on those early days, was there decapitation? Yes, I know there was decapitation because the video showed a Thai worker who was clearly already dying. He had been gut shot, I think, and was lying on the floor. And you can hear the terrorists around him yelling, give me a knife, give me a knife, presumably to decapitate him because that's what they eventually tried to do. And not having a knife, they used a garden hoe. So I had seen part of this video where they hack it at his neck with a garden hoe. And uh, in the screening that the IDF did, I saw the rest of the video where they, they keep at it. It's not one swipe that it takes to, to do that. So there's no doubt that the atrocities that, that, that were done were maximal. They were mm -hmm. a, as, as bad as, as, as you can get. Now, there are some specific claims that have been made that I myself as a reporter can't confirm. I, I haven't seen the evidence for them. I've heard testimony, and I've certainly heard secondhand testimony where someone's, someone's sister's friend was a first responder and observed this or that. Mm. What did Anthony Blinken say that he'd observed? Didn't he give some testimony that he, he was shown imagery that confirms whichever r report was, was then current? And I, I don't, I've lost, lost connection to what those details were. Yeah, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State of the United States, he gave testimony that, that he had seen a family that was bound uh, and then dismembered before being killed. So kids with fingers taken off, mm. feet taken off, a father with his eye gouged out, uh, and then killed. So that's, that's the standard here. Mm. At the margins, there are particular atrocities that have been described that you know, I, as a reporter, I can't claim to have seen the videos of this, so I, I can't confirm them. But, you know, the dozens of decapitated babies, uh, the fetuses ripped from the mother's wombs, these, these, these have been 
these are on the list of things that that have have been claimed and mm. from my perspective what i know has happened is quite enough yeah and you know the the particular atrocities beyond that uh, don't really change my opinion of the situation yeah i would agree i mean maximal is is maximal I mean, the reason why I wanted you to go into some gruesome detail is not for the sake of the luxuriating in the horror of it, but I just think there there are layers of moral confusion here that I'm noticing get deposited upon our you know, public conversation about what's happening and what you know what is right for Israel to do in in light of what has happened. That I just think we have to cut through, and so one species of confusion is to imagine that really body count is all, right? So if Israel, if the IDF drops bombs on Gaza and kills more than 1,400 innocent Palestinians, well then, at a minimum, the balance is even with respect to the ethics of the situation. Their, their response has been proportional. And the moment they kill more than that, well then, uh, the Israelis are the evil ones. And that's is really it's just that's how you do the the moral arithmetic, and that's just so obviously wrong. I mean, there are many many smart people who would sign up for that kind of analysis. I imagine someone like Noam Chomsky would think that's how you have to think about it. And we, therefore, on on his account, therefore, we are orders of magnitude worse than our enemies have been in in quite a long time because of all the people we and the Israelis and you know Western powers generally have killed as collateral damage in in recent wars but it just it seems to me quite obvious that there is a difference between a group of people that would intend to murder non-combatants up close and personal in totally inefficient and and painful ways and make a kind of uh, sacrament of that violence I'll get to what I mean by that later on and people who would take fairly great pains to avoid killing non-combatants, all the while knowing that if they're going to wage any kind of war, non-combatants will be killed, right? So they'll drop leaflets telling people to get out of buildings they intend to destroy. Uh, they'll call cell phones to try to get people to leave those buildings. And, uh, you know, as I've said in previous podcasts, you know, you know, Hamas is consciously using those non-combatants as human shields in a way that would be completely unthinkable and just ridiculous if you reverse the logic. I mean, you just imagine these, you imagine IDF soldiers using those non-combatants on those kibbutzes as human shields against the onrushing forces of Hamas. Killing non-combatants was the point, right? So there is no using Jewish human shields to deter them. But the reverse is not the case. And Israel, you know, if Israel wanted to kill non-combatants, by the tens of th and hundreds of thousands, they could do that. The fact that they don't do that reveals that all the non-combatants they kill are, at worst, inadvertent, right? This is not, if they could kill only members of Hamas and not kill a single woman or child in Gaza, that's what the IDF would do. So there's, there's a moral equivalence there that I think is, it really, it really has to be cut through and, and the difference has to be reiterated. And so that some of the details you gave I think are necessary to do that. The other piece, uh, which I think is it's going to be very hard for m most rational, secular people to understand, is that the kinds of people who would do what you just described, 
are almost certainly, I mean, it's not to say there wasn't a, a psychopath or two among them, almost certainly these were psychologically normal people. It's not like jihadism functions as a pure bug light for the world's psychopaths. And, you know, these are people who would do horrible things anyway, but they're just doing these particular horrible things under the aegis of jihad. This is something I believe you and I have spoken about when when talking about the Islamic State in the past. It's not like all the people who were raping Yazidis and taking them as sex slaves and killing their husbands, even the people who had dropped out of medical school in the UK for the pleasure of doing that, it's not like they were all psychopaths who were destined for a a life of rape and murder anyway, and they just decided to do it here. The deepest problem here that I think we have to talk about is that there are ideas that are so powerful and destructive that they create a kind of absolute evil that, you know, to our horror, doesn't actually require the presence of many evil people, right? I mean, normal people can be led to believe the requisite things that could justify precisely the kind of violence you described. And that, that I think, is just for secular people, people who have never met anyone who has met anyone who has been certain of paradise, I think it's very hard to understand. And so anyway, I, feel free to disagree with anything that I just said there. But uh, that, I, I think that is something that uh, you know, I'm eager to um, disabuse our audience of. Yeah, I, I think we're about to start talking, I think, about Hamas and ISIS. And uh, I'll, I'll introduce one difference after what you've just said, which, which is ISIS worked very hard to make sure that everybody was on the same page ideologically. Hmm. A lot of that project was an educational project. It was, you have to believe the following things. In fact, that's how we know that you're with us, is that you believe the following things. And you don't deviate at all, because if you do deviate, then we're coming after you, even with that minor deviation. And from what I've seen of of the guys who were coming in from Hamas, absolutely most of them seemed to have jihad on the brain. They go in and they use particular religious slogans that are familiar from from jihadism elsewhere uh, that indicate they're thinking about this and they're they're phrasing what they're doing in in those terms. There's other people who are going in and and as we've noted, stealing kids' bikes and mm. bike helmets. And I don't know how they're phrasing what they're doing to themselves. Clearly, they, they've dehumanized Israelis in their own minds so, so that they think it's a reasonable thing to loot a place where people are literally burning alive within a, a few dozen meters of them. So it's at least a sense of, of inhumanity and, and uh, hatred of, of, of their imagined enemy. But it's unclear what they all believe beyond that. And there's mm. a, a whole range of, of, of things that, that, that people might have had going through their minds from, hey, I'm striking a blow against uh, the ones who have dispossessed us, to I'm doing something that God is going to reward me for with the, the highest rewards of heaven. And then to add to that, you know, even in Gaza, especially in Gaza, the approval rate of Hamas is very, very low. Gazans do not like Hamas in general. Mm. And so to see them doing these horrible things in the name of an organization that is known to be corrupt and incompetent is, again, it's, it's very strange and different compared to ISIS, where 
with the fighters for ISIS, they thought that ISIS, for whatever faults it had, represented the will of God, was preordained and prophesied as the standard bearer for Islam, bringing about the end of the world just as, as, as God desired. So in a way, it's more unsettling to see people doing these horrible things for an entity that they seem to know is defective, mm. but they're doing it anyway and with the same amount of cruelty. Yeah, okay. Well, that, that's. Um, let me just pass over some of that terrain again, because I think there's a few more distinctions and caveats to add. I mean, one is I, I've heard that while Hamas is very unpopular in Gaza, probably for their um, conscious immiseration of the Gazans by stealing all of the resources for the purpose of building terror tunnels, etc., they're actually still popular in the West Bank, and they probably would win an election today if, if held in, in the West Bank. Um, have you heard that discrepancy or not? Yeah, I think this actually illustrates things nicely. I mean, it, it's exactly crisscross, where in the West Bank, which is governed by the Palestinian Authority on the Palestinian side, Hamas is relatively popular. And then in Gaza, which is governed by Hamas, mm. and where the Palestinian Authority was kicked out, the Palestinian Authority is more popular. So in, in both cases, they're misgoverned. I mean, these are yeah. terribly misgoverned statelets. And the one who's not misgoverning you is the one who's more popular. Yeah, and the, the other caveat I would introduce is that however unpopular Hamas might be, there's probably a distinction between you know, hating them as a form of government and not supporting what they did on October 7th. Right? It's conceptually coherent to me to believe that there's some people who thought October 7th was a great victory, and even knowing the details, they would fully support it, but they also think Hamas is a terrible governing organization and, and they've ruined Gaza. Right? Yeah, Those yeah. are not and incoherent. I, I agree. Yeah. I, I think that the thing to remember about Hamas is, is that it's had years in power, and the ideology that it stands for is rather well laid out. It's, it's in favor of an eventual worldwide Muslim government. Mm -hmm. It is in favor of the Muslim Brotherhood's view of, 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 of government and of how Islamism should work. It is not, though, ISIS. In ISIS, ISIS operated with crystalline clarity, mm. extreme simplicity, where you could describe the system of government that ISIS wanted on the back of a three-by-five card. Whereas Hamas, as an entity that actually has to you know, pick up trash and do do a lot of, of, of things for, for years, not, not just briefly as ISIS did, is a pretty messy thing and mm. not nearly as, as, as ideologically pure, clear, and simple as, as ISIS was. Mm. Yeah, well, let's talk about the fragmentation of the jihadist landscape for a moment, because I think it's interesting. I, I don't think it's as consequential as we would want it to be. I mean, we would want it to be totally internecine and, and self-canceling, right? It'd be great if the jihadists were just killing themselves and focused on, on their, their hair-splitting theological differences and uh, really just let them have at it. But in their hatred of secular, pluralistic, i.e. Western values, I think they're united in their aspiration to you know, triumphantly spread Islam, whatever form they favor, to the end of the earth. They're Ultimately united. Obviously, there's the split between Shia and Sunni. There's the 
infighting among Sunni jihadist groups. You know, we have, we've got the Islamic State that would more or less excommunicate everyone for their lack of purity. They would certainly, as you point out in a recent article in The Atlantic, they would consider Hamas more or less apostates because they're willing to play the political game, the nationalistic game, and, they're, and above all, they're willing to collaborate with Shia in being backed by Iran and being allied with Hezbollah. I think that detail is confusing to people. What do you make of Hamas's Machiavellian adaptability to collaborating across the Shia-Sunni divide in a way that the, the Islamic State would never countenance? Yeah, not just would never countenance, but order number one of business yeah, for, kill for those ISIS people. Yeah. would be yeah. to, whoever was doing that, yeah. kill them. Kill the Shia as quickly as possible. So they think that anybody who would collaborate with the Shia, including Hamas, need to be killed. Now, Hamas does not have a problem with that. Uh, you, you mentioned Hezbollah. You mentioned Iran, which supplied, supplies Hamas, most of its military budget. There's also Syria. Syria is run by a, a, an Alawite Shia government mm. and is a huge supporter of Hamas. Hamas has no problem with this. I think that there's, there's a lot of Sunni jihadists who are deferrers. They, they say, in the future, we'll hash this out. In the meantime, we've got a shared enemy in the form of the Jewish state. So ISIS, one of the reasons it, it sped to popularity so fast was that it was uncompromising. Yeah, Anybody could see that, that it was not going to take any shortcuts. And so if you were in this for Islamic purity, ISIS was the one to go, to go for because it started off with absolute theological certainty and inflexibility and that appealed to a lot of people. And Hamas seems to be totally flexible theologically to the point where yeah, it, it'll accept people who are basically just nationalists. You know, if you're waving the Palestinian flag and you're okay with Hamas being in charge, then Hamas is okay with you. Whereas ISIS would want to kill you because you're a nationalist and God does not split up humanity by nations, only by Islam and not Islam. Mm. So th this, is a, this is a huge difference. The other view that, that ISIS has of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is that in ISIS's timeline is way down the road. Mm -hmm. Israel is not going to be vanquished. The Jews are not going to be vanquished until pretty late, like 11.59 p.m. In the, on the timeline of, of, of humanity. So they say if you're trying to do that right now, you've got things out of order. What you want, want to do now is purify your faith. Mm -hmm. And then once that's done, then Jesus will come back. The fight with the Jews will be won and so forth. And so they say that Hamas's single-minded focus on creating an, a state in Palestine is borderline idolatrous because you, you shouldn't be thinking so intensely about that when, when there's still a lot of theological matters to be cleaned up. Mm. So I guess I have a, a further question about Hezbollah and Iran. I don't know if this is the angle your reporting has taken at all, but looking at this from the vast distance of just being a consumer of news here in America, it's hard for me to see how Israel doesn't decide and uh, probably in concert with, with American support, that Hezbollah currently constitutes a kind of existential threat and just needs to be preemptively destroyed. 
Right? I don't see how they just sit with Hezbollah on their northern border with 150,000 rockets, as has been reported, and a much larger force than they just encountered coming from Gaza. So while they have to deal with Gaza and, and they have to deal with Hamas, they, it sounds like they would have to deal with Hezbollah and maybe Iran too. Uh, so what's your sense of the looming specter of a much wider conflict being sort of inevitable at this point, however things play out in Gaza? Yeah, so in the, the early days after this attack, one of the things that I, I know was on lots of Israelis' minds was, is there a next step where Hezbollah steps in? Uh, that changes everything. If there's a northern front with, as you say, 150,000 rockets being aimed at Israel and a extremely battle-hardened force in, in Hezbollah. So that, that would, as I say, change everything to have two fronts open at the same time. I think it's, it's, it's simply a matter of priority where, and, and capability, where Israel thinks that it can obliterate Hamas as an operational entity. And Hezbollah, to do that, would initiate a war that is not nearly so obviously winnable. Mm. So they would much prefer to take care of what they can now and then figure out how to deal with, with, with Hezbollah from there. What I think You're not hearing anyone speculate that Israel would actually preemptively attack Hezbollah like in the absence of that front opening up from Hezbollah's side? No, I, I don't think that's likely to happen. Mm. I, I think Israel was so surprised by having to go into Gaza, feeling that there's no alternative but to go into Gaza, partially level it, and then destroy its administration, mm. that to open up a front with, with Hezbollah by choice right now would be unwise. Now, Hezbollah, of course, gets a vote in this, yeah. and they've sort of been testing the Israelis' defense continuously since October 7th with little attacks, a few rockets here and there. And the rockets that are being sent in, they're not being sent in in a way that, that guarantees a robust Israeli response, much less an invasion. But they have been sort of demonstrating that they're ready. And the Israelis have, have, been, have been meeting them tit for tat, mm -hmm. so that the Israelis have been attacking across the border and absorbing the hits from, from Hezbollah. And this alone is you know, a demonstration that Hezbollah has a willingness to try to affect the outcome in the South. Whether they're actually willing to open a war, a war of their choice, is, a, is another matter. I mean, it, Lebanon is a partially destroyed country already economically because of what's been going on there in the last few years. Mm -hmm. uh, Hezbollah is very unpopular there. Be and for them to take the pains that Lebanon has suffered over the last couple of years and then multiply those by having a war with Israel would make them even more hated there. Mm. But you know, as you say, this, this doesn't happen without the choice of Iran. I mean, yeah. Iran pays for Hezbollah, and Iran is, is in a position right now where it could, if, if Hamas is destroyed, lose its major proxy in the south, and so that they're going to push whatever buttons and, and pull whatever levers they can to keep that from happening. Mm. Many people seem to think, and I, I must say I find this view contagious, that the 
invasion of Gaza could well be a mistake. I mean, one, it's a mistake just on its surface because it seems to be the the only rational thing Hamas could have expected would happen, right? Therefore, it's, it's if there's any possibility of playing into their hand and doing what they w- would want you to do, it seems that's the thing they would want. Would, if they wanted anything terrestrial, that's what they would have wanted to happen in response to what they did. But it also just, it gives them, you know, for a variety of reasons. One is they don't care about non-combatants dying. In fact, the non-combatants dying gives them a propaganda victory with respect to the perceptions of the rest of the world. Uh, though I would point out that the balance of world sympathy had already begun to swing against Israel even before the first bomb fell on Gaza. But we just know that imagery of, of children being pulled out of the rubble in Gaza is only going to work against Israel uh, you know, day by day. And world opinion from the, the UN on down is going to become more and more um, vociferous in, in its demands for a, a ceasefire. So there, several people have have expressed a different strategy, which, which I, there may be some reason why it's practically impossible. But most recently, I saw this in a Brett Stevens column in the New York Times, which you probably read, where he had spoken to, um, I think it was an Israeli general, who suggested there should just be a, a siege of Gaza without an invasion, or just a very light invasion, just enough to secure a siege, where you you create humanitarian corridors to allow for the civilians to get out of the north and get them into the south and perhaps even into Israel itself and protect them, feed them, and uh, th- thereby demonstrate your, your commitment to not harming non-combatants, and then simply let the people, the, the, the 40,000 fighters for Hamas, you know, starve eventually in their tunnels, right? I mean, they've supplied those tunnels with presumably months and months of rations, but so this would take a long time. But the one thing it would do is it would get the minimum number of Israelis killed in the process, one would presume, because you wouldn't be going into those tunnels and encountering booby traps and everything else they're going to encounter. And it would also kill the minimum number of non-combatants among the Palestinians. Have you heard any more about that kind of alternate strategy and why the IDF appears not tempted to take that advice? Yeah, so I know why in the beginning the IDF was not tempted to take that advice, which is that the view that, was, that prevailed across the political spectrum in Israel was that Hamas had to be destroyed, that nothing short of that would be acceptable, and everybody understood that there is no way to do that other than by occupying, reoccupying, maybe temporarily, Gaza. But I, Im- I imagine this siege idea is is it just a slower way of destroying them? I mean, you're just going to you starve oh, yeah. or kill anyone coming out of those tunnels. Right. I, I'm just describing what the mentality was in the very beginning, mm-hmm. which was it, it was it was a mood of despair and wrath. Yeah. And the only remedy for this that anybody could imagine, and this is promised politically, this, this is what, again, across the spectrum was agreed upon, was that this is going to take re-entry into Gaza. Right. So there's the part where you say that, and there's the part where you kind of take it back, where you sort of wake up to the reality of exactly how bad that would be. That it would be, you know, a combination of Battle of Fallujah and Fall of Mosul, all in one place, and possibly thousands and thousands of Israelis killed, and many more Gazans, civilians, and and combatants. So, I think that there has been 
an attempt to think through how this can be done in a way that that establishes deterrence and that reaches the the objective of destroying the capability of of Hamas. Now, there's a question of can you do that? <laughs> can you actually destroy the capability of Hamas either by going in and reoccupying Gaza or by laying siege to it? And I, I that I have real doubts about either one of those. That that the possibility of of establishing a mode of egress for civilians, allowing in humanitarian supplies, figuring out a way that they get only to civilians who decide to re- remain behind and and not to Hamas. Mm. These are like a whole bunch of ifs that that it's it's unclear that any of the plans that that Israel has have figured out how to how to do. I think you know we, we've we've barely talked about the hostages yeah. who are in Gaza, and like it, it's it's easy to forget the magnitude of what happened on October seventh, and how far beyond the planning mm. that Israel had done before this got. I mean, like it, it, Israel was politically and socially paralyzed in the two thousands when a single Israeli military ho- uh, hostage was taken, Gilad Shalit, and now they've got like two hundred forty. Military yeah. and civilian hostages, and have to plan for that. It's it's literally orders of magnitude more than were planned for in in scenarios that that have been considered. And so it, it's it's easier to see why those the plans might have changed in the early days from go in invade Gaza to maybe there's something uh, some half measure that will get as close to the objective as that would take us. Mm. I, I want to turn the conversation back to the underlying ideological problem and it's the, the, the kind of concentric circles of support for it that worry me because um, I think it's very easy for us to lie to ourselves about just how extreme a group like Hamas is and how little sympathy they're likely to, to have uh, in the Muslim community worldwide because they're so obviously barbarians. But what we've seen is not only do they have sympathy among the wider Muslim community in, in Gaza and beyond, but you know, even among non-Muslims on the, on the political left throughout the world and on the, in our finest uh, universities, there's something very strange about this. And anti-Semitism doesn't really cover it. I mean, I think this, is, this certainly is a moment where if you are ever going to worry about anti-Semitism, now is your chance. And uh, there's, there's much more to say about why that is such a durable hatred. But in my view, I, again, I, I just view this as the problem of jihad and its sympathizers, and that's a much bigger problem than you know, hatred for Israel or hate for, hatred for the Jews. I mean, actually, so, I mean, one thing I would recommend to people who doubt the, the noises that are coming out of my mouth is to look at and just look at, read a book, you know, read, read your book, Graham, on the Islamic State, right? The, the, the way of the strangers and, and just see, a, a, you know, jihad in a context that has v- nothing to do with Jews and nothing to do with Israel and nothing to do with any of the variables that people put forward as absolutely crucial to understand, to make sense of the, the moral uh, landscape between the, the Israelis and the Palestinians. So this is not there's no you know settler colonialism to worry about there's no 
blockade of Gaza to worry about. There's, I mean, none of those, there's no indignities at checkpoints. The career of the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq gives you a crystal clear look at the jihadist project where none of the variables that people care about with respect to Israel and the Palestinians are in place, but the logic of jihad is. Or um, perhaps an even easier piece of homework would be to just uh, watch the the film uh, Hotel Mumbai. I don't know if you've seen that recently, but that film recounts the terrorist atrocity committed by uh, Lashkari Taiba in Mumbai in 2008, I think November 2008, where something like a dozen jihadists, you know, otherwise invariably described as terrorists, came ashore in Mumbai and killed, I think, upwards of 160 people. And it's a great film. It depicts what they did just with, you know, brutal realism. And um, again, this is a context that has absolutely nothing to do with American foreign policy, colonialism, you know, apart from, I mean, I guess you could blame the Brits for the partitioning of Pakistan and India. But Apart from that, this is just jihad unleashed in a direction other than the Jews and America and the West, and it's the same thing. I guess so. What, you know, feel free to demur on any of that, but I, I want to talk about what we can understand, what we can realistically understand about the wider culture of sympathy for jihad and, and what to do about it. I mean, so just to jump to the punchline for me is what I think has to happen. Uh, for the future to be tolerable is that we have to figure out how to get the vast majority of Muslims worldwide to repudiate jihad, right? And to reconceive jihad in a way that is truly benign, right? Like, and to not sympathize with jihadists when they come into conflict with non-Muslims simply because they're Muslims. We need all of civilized humanity, Muslim and non-Muslim, to recognize that jihadism in all its forms, in all its groups, is the enemy of civilization, right? And the enemy of open societies. If it's not an existential threat, it's a threat to having tolerable, a tolerable standard of living in open societies, right? If we don't want the entire world, the, you know, all the capitals of Europe uh, in particular, to more and more resemble you know, Jerusalem in the Whenever it was the 1980s, or you know, when when you know, as you said, every time you got on a bus, you were you wondered whether it was going to explode. We need something like two billion Muslims to recognize that jihad as holy war has to be in their past. And I'm wondering how we get there. And I and I uh, so I wanted to bring you again. Feel free to give us marginalia on everything I just said, but I want to bring you to the phone call from the what that one Hamas fighter to his family, because I, I, while I haven't seen the videos you watched, I did listen to that call and read the transcript, and I, I think it indicates something that we, we need to be honest about, and um, so anyway, that's where I'm headed. Feel free to jump in. Yeah. yeah. Sam, are you, you going to play that uh, phone call or sample it? Or? I could read the transcript. If I played it, it wouldn't, oh, yeah, it w- it wouldn't work right. for people, but I, I, mean, I, I, you know, I have the transcript. I could read it. If you want me to, um, otherwise we could describe it. Yeah, I'll, I'll describe it. And yeah. I, I think there's, I think there's actually something hopeful in that phone call. Mm. It, this is a very distressing phone call to hear for a number of reasons. It's this guy, I believe his name is Mahmoud, who calls his parents, calls his family from inside Israel, and says, 
hey, you know, I killed this Jewish woman and I've got her phone. And hey, look at my phone inside Gaza that I left behind and look at my WhatsApp. And I sent myself all these pictures of what I did. What I did is killed 10 Jews with my own hands. And the transcript probably won't do it justice. You really have to hear it and probably understand the Arabic too to, to, to really get what the parents are saying by way of reply. They're freaking out. They're shocked. They don't say anything that, that maybe that what we would want them to say. No. They don't say, you know, you're no son of ours. How could you do this? They say, what? What? What are you, what are you talking about? Where are you? Are you coming home? Come home. Come home. Uh, and they say some sort of stock phrases, Islamic phrases of you know, praise be to God and something like that. Mm. But it, it, it's not with the, it's not at all with the sense of thank goodness you did this. It's much more with a sense of shock and concern, mm. terror of w- what their son has told them. And it could just be that they're afraid that he's never coming home. Right. A very strong likelihood, he said at some point, he's in the call. He says victory or martyrdom, which, you know, that means martyrdom. Mm-hmm. So they might just be concerned about that. But they, and uh, you can hear a sibling or a friend on the, on the call too, trying to figure out what's going on. That, that, um, that wasn't a brother. I, I couldn't tell if that was a, 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 yeah, I mean, it seemed like it must have been a brother, but. It, it could be. He yeah. says, Uchi, which means my brother, but mm-hmm. you can also say that to friends. So mm-hmm. it, it might not be. But I believe his sister is, is there. And they're asking him, like, who? It, it's it's mostly to ask him, what the heck are you talking about? Where are you? Come home. But there there is and, a, a what you're calling stock phrases again. So I don't speak any Arabic. It, presumably you speak some. So you know you know I'm just deferring to your judgment here. But and it also seemed to me that not everything was being tra- there were a few things that weren't actually translated in the transcript I read. So I just, there's there's some stuff the, the mother is saying that well, that I'm not getting a- a- any of. But you know what you're calling stock phrases that you know there's you know like praise be to God kind of phrases. You weren't, I mean, certainly what you don't hear is what you would expect to hear if any of the participants in, well, let's just change the context, any of the guys who committed the My Lai massacre had phoned home to Nebraska saying, Mom, I just killed 10 of them. I'm calling from a dead woman's phone. I'm, I, your son is a hero. You know, don't you hold your head up high, Father. You know, I, I killed 10, 10 with my own hands. What you don't hear is, the response, you know, what the fuck are you talking like? Like, like, where is where is my son, and what have you done with him? Like, there's no in the American context, even in extremis during a in a very ugly war, right? What there wouldn't have been on the American side in American culture would be a there'd be no shape of understanding the exaltation and the the fulfillment of the whole life project. Being communicated by the son in that situation, what 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 it would have clearly been was a total derangement of a human personality in extremis, and would have been perceived as a kind of moral emergency. What I believe I was detecting in that conversation, again with zero Arabic, was a shared cultural understanding that jihad is real, martyrdom is real, killing the Jews makes abundant sense. Yes, there's almost certainly a mother's love wanting to see her son again, but so much of what the son was saying was just Islamist, jihadist, boilerplate, like, 
you know, I've made it. I was born for this religion. Like when the, when the friend or the brother says, you know, come back, he says, what do you mean come back? I was, you know, my, my mother bore me for religion. And, and I think at that point that the brother or, or friend says something like, what are you talking about? And he's, of course, he understands the idiom of jihad. He understands mm-hmm. that, that his brother or friend, the son, Mahmoud, has gone completely nuts and has killed, has killed a bunch of people. Again, they might approve of this at some level. They're also mm-hmm. definitely, in the moment, horrified by, what, by something that's going on and scared about what's going on. And one reason I, I am pushing this interpretation is, of course, I, I, would, I would like to be optimistic about human yeah. nature, also yeah. because th- this is a reaction that a lot, of, a lot of Muslims have had, a lot of people who are very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause have had, which is, yes, we support the Palestinians, maybe we even support Hamas, but we are also kind of shocked by some of the things that we're seeing to the point where we actually, for our own psychological benefit, deny them, which mm-hmm. may be what the parents are doing in that call. I mean, you've mentioned the people outside of Gaza who are you know, tearing down posters of kidnapped children and who are saying things that are in favor of Hamas at a point where they can't not know what Hamas terrorists did to, to defenseless civilians. I suppose the the brightest silver lining that I could put on some of those people's actions is that rather in some cases rather than saying yes we saw those videos and we love it they're saying Hamas didn't do this we don't believe it mm. Hamas only attacks even Hamas officials have said oh you know Hamas only attacks military targets and why did they kill hundreds of people at a a, a peace rave Oh, because they saw them sleeping and thought that they must have been soldiers. This is a contemptible response. Mm-hmm. There's no way that, that a, a sane person could believe it. But it does suggest that they think that there is some excess that, that will turn people off who are on their side, but who, when they see images of beheaded babies and, and such, still have some humanity to them. And so the, the, mm. the best way to, to manage that cognitive dissonance is to pretend that you didn't see what, what you saw, which is itself, of course, a contemptible reaction. But I suppose it's at least better than they're seeing the beheaded babies and saying, too bad there's not more of them. Mm. And there's people who say that too, of course. So what do you think the way forward is here? I mean, I perceive, I mean this is a, a long emergency. I mean, ever since September 11, 2001, uh, you know, I have been, uh, at least as a a side gig, you know, focused on this, uh, not to the degree that you have, but, you know, I, I've been a student of jihad, however distantly, for at least 20 years. And, you know, I, I just wor- worry that this is, I mean, there, arguably there, there are more pressing problems in the world and that some of them abut this current moment. I mean, I think a war with Iran would be a huge problem. And the fact that they're backed by Russia and even China uh, opens the possibility of something like World War III. Right, avoiding World War Three is a significant priority. You know, if looming conflicts with Russia and China that have nothing to do with what's happening in the Middle East, so there are arguably more pressing concerns geopolitically for America uh, in particular at the moment. But I just I see the problem of jihadism as this is the thing that's not going to go away until it fundamentally loses its subscribers. 
right? And, and that, I think there are two components to that. One is actually killing jihadists, but two is just making the jihadist project look like such a losing proposition that it, it's no longer attractive to Muslims you know, in, in any current generation, right? Like that it just has to be reconceived. I mean, every bit as unattractive as the, the theological excesses of the, the 14th century are to most Christians now, you know? Like most Christians are not hankering for people to be burned alive for heresy. And Christianity had that moment, and that moment got beaten out of them by modernity, ultimately. And the same has to happen to Islam. And I think it's harder, it's a harder project because I think jihad is far more central to, um, you know, jihad as holy war against infidels and apostates, etc., is far more central to, you know, real center of the fairway Islam than burning heretics alive is for, you know, Christianity. And so it's a harder problem, but I just, it just seems like there is no, there's no path toward a tolerable future in a pluralistic world with open societies as we know and love them that doesn't include fully discrediting the jihadist project. And so I just, do you have any sense of how we or anyone can go about doing that? Yeah, I've got a few thoughts on that. I mean, I would first say, you know, Jonathan Sachs, who's the chief rabbi of the UK, uh, and I had a conversation once where he, this is at the height of ISIS's reign of terror, where he said, you know, in fairness, I see some Judaism there too. That is, mm. the three great monotheisms, they all had their moment. And interestingly, he, he, he said, it comes about 1,500 years after their founding. So he, he said, in the case of Judaism, we, we had this moment you know, around the Maccabean revolt and Christianity. There were these excesses uh, around the time of the Reformation. And right on cue, Islam is showing up trying to work out how to deal with its most violent adherents. So does that mean we have 200 years to wait for this to get worked out? Yeah, so it's, it's not the most optimistic mm-hmm. comment, but it does suggest that these things do, over the course of human history, work, the, their work themselves out. Now, on the more micro scale, you can see some of what you were hoping for happening in the space of our human lifetimes. So there was a time, you remember it well, when the Islamic State was drawing in tens of thousands of people from around the world who thought this type of apocalyptic jihadism is the way to go. And it failed so miserably that for a few years, it really did exhaust itself. Mm. It was to the satisfaction of many of its, you know, the candidate Muslims who might have been attracted to it, it lost and nobody wanted to, to join it under those circumstances. And I, I might add, even the kind of, we could call them latent jihadists who, who say had been indoctrinated with extremist forms of Islam that might not quite have gotten to the point of, of joining ISIS, but certainly were, say, Wahhabi standard intolerant. Those types of Islam have, have diminished greatly in, in the last few years too. Mm. Uh, it's only been a few years, but when Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, came to power, one of the things he really did do for his many faults is he turned off the spigot of funding for Wahhabism worldwide. And a bunch of very extreme preachers and mosques were told to get into line, sometimes just kicked to the curb and were jobless. And 
you really can in, in the discourse of jihadism worldwide see a difference. Mm-hmm. So these things do ebb and flow that way. But I, I agree with you that in Islamic history, in the jurisprudence of Islam, there's this whole body of knowledge, a discussion of, of jihad. And jihad, as it's conceived in that history, has overwhelmingly been a violent thing. I certainly hope that it, it's you know considered by more Muslims something that one does inwardly and you know uh, that trying to improve oneself. But no, if you look a uh, hundred, two hundred years ago, and you turn to the chapter on jihad in a book of Islamic jurisprudence, it's about war, and th- those resources will mean that a lot of people who are looking for authentic expressions of their religion, as evidenced by those expressions existing in many different points in the religion's history, mm. are going to keep finding that. So that that's there's reason, in other words, for very long-term optimism, and in the short term. There's some reason to believe that these things can be affected by decisions, by policies, but they can't be totally controlled. Do you see a prospect in you know, geopolitically in plain Saudi Arabia against Iran and having the, the tension there uh, more fully moderate the Saudi uh, willingness to to support Sunni? Jihadism in its various forms. I mean, we, you just said they've they've turned off the spigot of you know wah, you know Wahhabi mosques you know around the globe, but presumably that process could go much further, right? Where you would have the Saudis really just fundamentally change the kind of Islam they're willing to be allied with, you know, wanting to have a um, more more stature in 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 a modern cosmopolitan world. Can you see an end game there with respect to how we collaborate with we and the Israelis collaborate with the Saudis, given the, the their concern about Iran? Yeah, so the collaboration is already really, really strong. So the Abram Accords, you know, were not including Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia does not have an official relationship with Israel, but right. it's had a security relationship for some time, and they share as an ally the United States, and they share as an enemy Iran, and. I think actually getting the Saudis on board, the Saudi leadership on board with reducing support for jihadism and for jihadist ideology, that has already been done. The Saudis have actually reduced that support. Now, they may at some point reinstate it mm. if it's useful for them to do that. That they've, they've decided to be less supportive, in fact, to turn off support for jihadism, in part because Saudi Arabia and specifically the royal family were attacked through the 2000s by ISIS. Mm. There was you know, there was this long arrangement when actually Graham, maybe we should just take a moment to explain this because it is kind of paradoxical. I mean, the, the Saudi regime was viewed essentially as an apostate regime by Al Qaeda and the Islamic State, and yet the Saudis have funded all of the extremist mosques the world over that would give rise to the very jihadist tendencies that would view them as apostates. Can you make sense of that situation? Yeah, so the Saudis were funding Wahhabi mosques, and Wahhabi to be Wahhabi means to be part of this very intolerant version of Islam, but not necessarily to fight on in favor of that type of Islam. In fact, many Wahhabis, especially the the ones who were adhering directly to what the Saudi clergy were saying, they would say, "We have to give general obedience to the leader of a Muslim state, such as the King of Saudi Arabia." Right. 
But the Saudis would say to Wahhabis who were overseas, yeah, give them hell. You know, you can fight all you want overseas. And so even someone like Osama bin Laden, who said about the Saudi monarchy, you people are unfit to govern and so forth, he didn't say fight against them. In fact, he, he, he kind of just invited them to step down mm-hmm. because he, he was himself a Saudi and he, had these, he knew these limits. And also, he had support from the Saudis when he was fighting overseas. Right. And then what you see in the 2000s was his followers started attacking Saudi Arabia. They started, started bombing princes. Mm-hmm. They started attacking Saudi security forces. And then during the time of ISIS, they were going full speed ahead on that, that attack. So a certain number of Saudis were allowed to go to Syria, better that they fight there than in Saudi Arabia. And then ISIS was saying very clearly, okay, time to attack in Saudi Arabia. And at that point was roughly when MBS comes to power mm-hmm. and says, okay, no more of that. We're stopping all of our support for jihadism for, again, very pra- pragmatic and self-preserving reasons. Mm. But it seems to have been real. And, and you, you see the way that, that the types of Islam that are preached publicly in Saudi Arabia tend to be much, much softer. And it's clear that MBS has maybe not literally, but maybe literally gone to many of the clerics and said, all right, the version of Islam that you're going to push is a nicer version with a gun to their heads. Mm. So that's, that's, actually, that's actually happened. And, this is actually a, a kind of a lesson in political pragmatism that uh, I'm, I'm somewhat reluctant to absorb, but you know, viewing MBS as a more or less total psychopath you know, for the killing of Khashoggi, it's a little hard to admit that it's probably good to collaborate with him uh, in this deeper project of de-radicalizing the Muslim world. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we've, we've talked about MBS and Khashoggi, whom I knew, and I can see the, the argument that you want to keep your hands clean and not do business with someone who's not just killed Khashoggi, but who has imprisoned, his state has imprisoned and tortured a bunch of other people too. Mm. He's absolutely an authoritarian dictator. He also can be very, very useful. And at some point, you have to decide whether you want to keep your hands clean or get something done. Mm. In the case of, of Israel, there's no doubt in my mind that he would like to have an, an official arrangement with Israel and to benefit from that, both with Israel and with, with, with a new type of, of alliance and friendship with the United States. And if that happened, it would be at the expense of Iran. So, you know, Iran is a jihadist state. It's the Shia version of ISIS mm. as it would exist if ISIS, you know, survived for, for 40 years and, you know, routinized to, to a certain degree. So getting, getting the power of Iran diminished in almost any way necessary, you know, could be seen as a useful thing to do. Mm. Well, actually, on that point, I, I had heard, I've actually never been to Iran, but I had heard that you know, a majority of the population was quite sick of theocracy and just, you know, desperate to have the mullahs no longer run the place, uh, despite the fact that they haven't actually effectuated that as in, in any kind of political uprising. Yeah, that's true. That's so, true. I, I've spent months in Iran, starting, I was first there in 2003, and traveling around every corner of the country, every major city. and. I would say yes, the, especially in the big cities, 
people are absolutely sick of religious government. And in private, they are, they're, I mean, <laughs> in private, it's, it's like being in Los Angeles. In public, it's like being in Tehran. Mm. So, so what, what you've heard is true. I will say this, though. In the smaller towns, there was genuine affection for the regime and for the type of, of society that the regime is, is imposing by force. Mm. And the, twice I went to the Quds Day celebrations or parades. So this is a, a day that's devoted by the regime in Tehran to whipping up support for the destruction of Israel, for the reconquest of Jerusalem. And that day, <laughs> you, you just see bus after bus arrive from the countryside of these very devoted country bumpkins who, who are on the side of the regime, but who need to be bussed into mm -hmm. Tehran to fill up the streets. Uh, without them, you get a bunch of morose cosmopolitan secular mm -hmm. citizens of Tehran who, who don't show up for the parades. So it's, you know, it, it's, it's not too different, I guess, from other parts of the world in that regard where the, the, there's an urban and city divide. But so when, when you analogize between Iran and, and ISIS or the Islamic State, you're talking about the regime itself and, and whatever sympathies there are you know, outside of Tehran. But it's a, um, it is a government, perhaps ultimately to be nuclear armed, that is explicitly jihadist. Oh, yeah. Not just jihadist, but in the early days, in the early days, it was millenarian as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at the things that were being said by supporters of Khomeini in the early days of the Iranian Revolution, there were people who thought he was this figure, the hidden imam who for centuries had been in occultation and whose mm -hmm. rearrival in the scene would herald you know, some of the, the end of times. And you know, that, that's, that's very ISIS-like. The, the belief that you have to create, an, a, create a state that is devoted to a violent form of the religion, and that by doing so, you're going to bring about the end of the world, it just sounds very familiar. And that's just the Shia version of, of ISIS. It was the Shia version of ISIS, and now we've added a few decades. So we see what happens in time. You find a population that gets very sour on this, this way of being governed, but a state that, that cements its power, you know, acquires nuclear weapons. And becomes a, a really dangerous and malevolent player on the international scene. Mm. Well, Graham, I know it's getting late over there in Israel. What's your plan? How long are you staying? I'm staying indefinitely. I mean, th this is, for me, the most interesting story in the world right now. Mm. So I, I, I want to see how it shakes out. What happened on October 7th was, was so shocking, in part because one doesn't know where it ends. Mm. One doesn't know where it ends for Israel. One doesn't know where it ends for the captive population of, of Gaza, and one doesn't know where it ends on the borders beyond Israel. You know, Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, these countries all have populations that, that are extremely sympathetic to the Palestinians, and that when they see the carnage in Gaza, are going to be asking their government, their governments, why do you have these de jure and de facto relationships with, with, with Israel? And that could mean, if things get really out of hand, threats to the stability of Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and then if the entry of Lebanon and Hezbollah into the war comes to pass, then there's existential worries about, about Israel and, and a total collapse of the region. So mm. it's my job to watch these things when mm -hmm. they happen.
and so I, I, I wouldn't want to leave before it uh, before it, it culminated. Actually, one question on that point about the the widespread sympathy for the Palestinians in the so-called Arab Street. Why have none of these countries been eager to absorb the Palestinians into their populations? Like you know, they're they're displaced people all over the world that wind up somewhere else, and they thrive to whatever degree in those societies. But here, it's it's always seemed that there's been a very cynical game played by the surrounding Arab states to kind of keep the Palestinian project certainly unresolved by letting them immigrate and become full-fledged citizens of Jordan or Egypt or any surrounding Arab country that is ostensibly so sympathetic to their plight. Yeah, there's a few reasons you've touched on one of them. Another is that when Palestinians have been pushed into other countries like Jordan and Lebanon, civil war has broken out. So this is an incredible problem of political and social digestion that they would be taking on if they accepted large numbers of, of, of Palestinians. Egypt could have the same problems. The other thing that has to be said is if they accept these Palestinians flushed out by Israel, then it sort of seems like they are allowing Israel to Israel's most intolerant, expansive politicians win. Mm. You know, will those Palestinians be allowed to go back into Gaza? Not according to some of the members of Netanyahu's government, who, when you right. ask them what happens next, they say they're gone for good. They're never coming back. We, we can't accept them in Gaza. And so it's not unreasonable for. Palestinians and the countries that would have to absorb them to wonder whether this is just a play to get Gaza for good and get rid of Palestinians altogether. Yeah, but it's just that there's interesting double standards here. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, in 1948, Jews were run out of all the surrounding countries in the Middle East, uh, Iraq and Syria and Yemen, I think, and Egypt. I mean, it's just, no one's talking about their right of return to those countries. And, you know, if Gaza is an open-air prison, which, you know, it seems like a fair description of the place, but it is that way in part because, and in, in equal part, because Egypt won't open that border, with the, their border with that prison, right? So it's, there's a very cynical use of the Palestinians to put the, the very existence of Israel in question by all the surrounding Arab countries, and it's um, yeah. If if those countries want to point to, they they would rather be pointing to Gaza and to Israel than to have their restive populations pointing at their own leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, remember when when Egypt made peace with Israel, the president of Egypt was killed. Right, he was he was he went down in a hail of bullets from one of his own officers at a military parade, and. That is a lesson that's not lost on any of the leaders today. Mm. They would love to make sure that this this problem is on someone else's territory. Mm. Well, Graham, this problem is not going away. I'm I'm pretty confident of that. Uh, so I, I I'm sure that we will be speaking again. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your wonderful articles in the Atlantic. Which um, whenever I, they enough of them get queued up, I, I feel like it's time to talk again. But you should know that there's always an open door here. So if you ever feel like you want to get in front of a microphone, just feel free to reach out because I love our conversations. As depressing as they they might be to the audience, I I love them. So thanks again. I love them too. Thank you so much, Sam. Yeah.